Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. The current pandemic crisis has clearly shown that the finance sector, the big banks, investment firms, and money management institutional investors, that's like BlackRock and Vanguard and such, in times of crisis, either caused by this pandemic or created by their speculative frenzy, are not capable of surviving without government intervention and trillions of dollars of virtually no-cost loans. To paraphrase Roosevelt, bankers get a return on their investment, a profit, because they take risk. If there's no real risk because the public keeps saving them whenever their risk doesn't pay off, then why do they get a profit? And then why shouldn't the public own finance? Ellen Brown is an American author, attorney, public speaker, and advocate of financial reform, most prominently public banking. She's the founder and president of the Public Banking Institute, a nonpartisan think tank devoted to the creation of publicly run banks. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Thanks, Paul. Great to talk to you. So I'd like to break this discussion into sort of two, two or three different kind of assumptions. There's public banking within the current political economic system, capitalism as we know it, or at least as we knew it, because who knows exactly what it is once this COVID crisis plays itself out. But at any rate, I'm talking about, uh, for example, the uh, public bank owned in North Dakota. There's public banks in Germany and other places. So I want to explore the existing models of public banking to start with. Then I want to talk about uh, if if there was really a progressive government federally or at a state level, maybe even at a city level, but I think that's harder to do. But if you really had a progressive uh, controlled government at federal state level that w really wanted to develop public banking, what might that look like? And, and we'll so but we'll get in that in sort of the second part. So let's talk about first what exists you know, and deal with sort of the normal arguments that are against public banking, which is it's not as efficient. Uh, without that competitive profit-driven motive, uh, public banks simply won't make uh, uh, rational loans and it could be misused by government and so on and so on. So uh, what exists and what's the actual record? First of all, it's a myth that public banks are not efficient. They're actually more efficient. Studies have shown this. Uh, we have Germany is probably the leader among European uh, public bank systems. Uh, half of their banking assets are publicly owned. Uh, these are the Sparkasm banks. <laughs> And so that's one model where the, they service the local community and they are regular local commercial banks. Uh, in China, they 80% of financial assets in China are publicly own, owned by the government, but that's more of a top-down system. So you have... Um, you know, the big banks, the infrastructure banks are owned by the government. And they, the, the key to all this is that banks actually create the money they lend. And so what the big bank, the big Chinese 
infrastructure banks do is they create money on their books. So the government borrows money created on the books of the banks, um, builds stuff, and then pay, pays the loan back back with the profits of the loan. That's the same thing um, Roosevelt did during the 1930s, but he did it with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which wasn't technically a bank, but it acted like a bank, and it was the largest financial institution at the, in the world for 25 years, operated very efficiently, and uh, of course was shut down under a Republican administration that didn't like the, the bankers were against it all along, of course, and that they didn't like the competition. But as you point out, um, it was only because the government stepped in during the 1930s, we the people saved the banks with FDIC insurance that they survived at all because um, everybody was pulling their deposits out of the banks because they didn't trust the banks because they were collapsing and they were putting their money into our public banking system, which was the postal banking system. We had a very strong, very vibrant, and very successful postal banking system from 1911 to 1967. And it, too, was shut down. Well, first of all, it was carefully circumscribed by laws that prevented it from really competing with the commercial banks. And so finally, they didn't need it anymore. And so the Republican or the yeah, it was Republican administration said um, that that was sort of an emergency thing and we didn't need it anymore. And so they, they shut it down. But in fact, if you track these banks over many years, they actually the public banks actually do better than the than the private banks. The private banks may look like they're being profitable, but then all of a sudden they crash, they collapse, as we saw in two thousand eight, for example. So your profits or your the bank overall is more stable as a public bank. Plus, public banks. Do many? They're not trying to make a profit. Although we have the Bank of North Dakota, which is not trying to make a profit, and according to the uh, Wall Street Journal in uh, 2014, the Bank of North Dakota is actually more profitable than J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, and this is because of their banking model. They've cut out all the middlemen. When, when, you, when you say more profitable, you mean based on return on the the amount of money they have. Obviously, Goldman and the others have way more money, so the absolute profits are far higher. Yeah, return on equity was higher. It was like eighteen percent on the average, which was great. Or I think when when that was written, and they they continue year after year to report record profits, even though the state itself, you know, is an oil state. Oil has collapsed ever since twenty fourteen, and still the Bank of North Dakota every year has record profits. So it's doing very well, and it's not all about oil, as that article actually <laughs> suggested. Well, well, what social good does the bank- Bank of North Dakota do other than, you know, making loans to smaller banks and such, but couldn't Wall Street do it the same? I mean, what do they do differently because they're public? Well, for one thing, they lend counter cyclically. So when the private banks are pulling back, as they did in 2008, they they don't trust the market, they don't trust each other, um, they don't have good borrowers or whatever, the public banks lend more. And there are charts that show this, that the public banks step in and fill in those gaps. And that's China, for example, did very well after 2008. And the reason was because of their public banks where they just pumped credit out there and built all sorts of things. 
And that's what FDR did during the 1930s as well, just pumped credit out and funded every sort of, they were called self-funding loans, anything that would pay back, like a railroad or a farm or a dam or things that were productive. So that's what they do. And they, so the Bank of North Dakota partners with the local banks. So they don't, the Bank of North Dakota model is that they're more like a banker's bank. So they help with liquidity, they help with capitalization, they help with regu- regulations. So the, it's the local bank that's sort of the front office and gets the customer. And then if the customer, if it's a big loan that the local bank wouldn't be able to take by itself, the Bank of North Dakota will come in and buy down 90% of the loan. So they'll hold a big portion of the loan, but the local bank still gets to keep the customer and they, they serve is the the loan and then that allows the local the local bank to more, make more and more loans of course because they can uh, they don't have to worry about capital requirement because they're only funding a small portion of each of those loans so that so it's a great partnership the local banks endorse the bank of north dakota they like it very much and they they all work together and they they service the they particularly focus on three sectors of the economy, which are, um, you know, North Dakota is. So that's energy, agriculture, and student loans. They made they were the first to make student loans, I think, in the 1960s. Now they're um, scaling back on that because uh, the government, the federal government, has taken over. But they've always, always they're making below market loans. And uh, so it's good for local economy. It's good for the tax base. It stimulates everything. And the, the it's just a recycling of their own money. The Bank of North Dakota was set up in 1919 when the um, North Dakotans were going through their own depression. And they were farmers. The farmers were losing their farms to um, big out-of-state banks. And so they... It, they wanted to keep their money in the state to serve themselves, so they set up their own bank. They, the um, nonprofit, or sorry, the nonpartisan league uh, was promoting this idea. Re- originally, it was actually a socialist engine, but uh, they couldn't persuade these Swedish and Norwegian farmers <laughs> to join a, any kind of socialist movement, so they renamed it the nonpartisan league. I, I mean, I'm sort of glassing or that's it's a more detailed story than that but anyway they were the nonpartisan league by the time they actually won an election and got this bank in place and they also set up a state-owned granary which is still there at the time there was um it was a cartel between the railroad the granary and the banks and so the farmers couldn't escape that out-of-state cartel and so they just set up their own and it's worked very well for them. So why hasn't this model caught on? I mean, uh, everything I've read about the North Dakota Public Bank is mostly positive. Even there was a study in Massachusetts uh, looking at whether Massachusetts uh, should follow the North Dakota model. And while the study I thought was pretty flimsy, they really didn't have anything very negative to say about the North Dakota model. Uh, what, what, why hasn't this caught on more? 
Well, my <laughs> feeling is that they've purposely kept a low profile. I'm, I only heard that I started writing about the Bank of North Dakota after 2008 because I saw that they were the only state that it, I knew they were the only state that had their own bank. So I was watching it and it turned out first there were four states that had, were still in the black and then there were three and then there was two and then there was only one state that, that, never went in the red and that was North Dakota. So I started studying it and writing about it. But I only knew that because I'd gone to a money reform conference and somebody told me that privately. I mean, it wasn't like big news all over the place that we have one public bank. Nobody had ever heard of it. I hadn't heard of it until, you know, until I really started to research it. So I think they purposely, they're up there in the North and kind of out of the way. And I think they purposely kept a low profile. Uh, our our public uh, postal system did, did very well until the bankers got all over it and finally managed to kill it. And that's that's what they're doing to the post office in general right now. We think we're, we've got one of our many campaigns is tr to try to get the um, postal banks operating again, which would make a lot of money for the, the post office. But anyway, once it becomes a public opponent, then you've got the opposition all over you. And I think that's what happened. Uh, in that Massachusetts study, which if, if people look at that study, it's set out to discredit the idea that Massachusetts should have a public bank. But one of the things they raise is how, how would a state ever get the capital to start a bank now? But you have a proposal how in these conditions, there actually might be a way to do that. Let us talk about that. Yeah. Well, what's quite interesting is that the, um, the Federal Reserve, in order to save the banks, as usual, has now thrown open its um, discount window to all banks in good standing at 0.25%. So they're lending virtually for free. They've eliminated the reserve requirement, and they've gotten quite – flexible on the capital requirement. They've said, if you need to use some of your capital, don't worry. Um, and uh, right now, I guess uh, Rashida Talib is, they're doing CARES Act too, and they're they're attempting to get more money for the states. And one thing that Representative Talib will be putting in there is, or trying to put in there, is that we can use some of that money to capitalize a state-owned bank. So that's a possibility. And then if if the states need that money, it doesn't seem to matter. That's what the Federal Reserve said. Don't worry if you have to use some of your capital. But the beauty of um, using your ca your money as capital for a bank is then you can lend 10 times as much. So if you had, if you were making 3% on your loans and you took that, use that money as capital, you could then make 30% less costs, of course. But um, anyway, you can make quite a bit more than you would have been making if you just have a loan fund. You know, you lend it out, wait for it to come back, lend, lend it again. If you use it for capital, you can lend 10 times as much. You need the deposits, but, or you used to need the deposits, but now because the Fed has said, don't worry about your reserve requirement and borrow from us, you can go right to the Fed and borrow that money. And the reason the Fed did that, I mean, theoretically, it was to help banks lend to the, to, you know, because of the virus, but it's, they were, the banks were in trouble ever since last September because of the, the repo market 
funding shot up to the interest rate shot up to 10 percent after 2008 the it used to be the banks borrowed from each other in the fed funds market um and then after 2008 they were afraid to borrow from each other because they didn't trust each other so they turned to the repo market and then explain what the repo market is Okay, so the difference between the Fed funds, one difference is in the repo market, it's basically a big pawn shop. So you put up some security, but the security is um, something like it's got to be something very safe and secure. So something like federal securities. So you can take your deposits, buy federal securities with them, post them overnight for a repo loan. But technically, it's called sale and repossession. So technically, you have sold your your um, securities, and then you get them back in the morning, and you pay a little little interest for the money you got, uh, you know, on, on top of the for the sale. So you've got two parties that own this this uh, security at the same time. One owns it at one night, and the other one owns it during the day, and and the uh, the lender or the borrower who is actually technically the seller gets to keep the security on its books so the bank the borrowing bank gets to keep that security on its books so it looks like it's got all these federal securities on its books so it's got p- plenty of collateral for its deposits but in fact it has lent it has sold that overnight and then borrowed it back it's all very um fluffy or very uh, somebody described it as cotton candy it's just there's nothing really there it's sort of credit built on credit built on credit and that was the problem the the hedge funds got in the repo market and they've sort of taken over the repo market so that so the big lenders which would be like the money market funds um, didn't want to lend to the hedge funds so they pulled out in September and the interest rate shot up to 10% so banks can't make any money if they have to spend 10% for their they're called I mean they're really it's really a substitute for their deposits they should be people think they're lending their deposits but they're really not anyway they have to pay a lot for their liquidity and so the Federal Reserve had to step in because the banks are their are their constituency and they kept having to do you know they've been propping up the repo market ever since and so I think they finally decided well we'll just let everybody buy it uh, borrow it you know let the banks borrow at our discount window at 0.25 percent and um that'll get rid of the hedge funds because they can't borrow at the discount window so really the bottom line is that we only have one reliable credit source in the country, and that is the Federal Reserve, which is us. We, the people, are backing this credit, this, you know, the full faith and credit of the United States is what backs the Federal Reserve, and yet it totally discriminates against we, the people. And as you pointed out with what Roosevelt said, if the banks are always going to be rescued and still they're charging 21% on credit cards, they didn't give us a break just because they got all these great breaks. Unlike Canada, which actually cut their, reduced their rates by half, reduced the credit card rates to 11%. Apparently it wasn't a regulation. It was just that, um, you know, it's sort of a give the borrowers a break or we're going to regulate, you know, we'll make you do it. So they did it, cut, cut the interest rate in half and 
the U.S. banks could have done that. But of course, they don't because their business model is to make as much money as they can. So if nobody tells them they have to do it, they're not going to do it. So that's the difference. If you had a public system, they would be there to serve the public. And that would, that's the difference. That's the mandate. And that's what they do in North Dakota. All right, imagine this on a big scale. So here's an unlikely scenario in the short term. On the other hand, uh, a vision like this is is necessary, I think. Um, If there actually was a progressive uh, federal government, a a progressive president, progressive control of Congress – and, and in a real world, meaning you're still dealing with massive financial institutions that are going to hate anything to do with public funding. Uh, what do you do? What are the steps towards establishing public banking on a scale that would break some of the political power of finance? Because it's not just about how much money they make on credit cards and such, which, which is an issue, of course. But it's also the political power because there's so much concentrated wealth in the hands of finance. They wind up controlling most of the politics. Yeah, totally. Well, and that's a serious problem because right now we have BlackRock. I mean, that's a whole different issue. But the um, the Treasury and the Fed have now partnered, so we no longer have an independent Fed. So theoretically, that's got potential. But really, what we've got is a fascist state, pretty much. I mean, it's a corporate run, corporate banker run state. And BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. I think they've got $15 trillion or something like that under management. Uh, And they, BlackRock is distributing, determining who gets the money out of this, um, well, it's um, all this 15 special purpose vehicles that were set up by the Treasury. Uh, so the tre- treasurer, we the people are putting up $454 billion to as capital, and then that'll allow um, borrowings at the rate of uh, $4 trillion, $4.5 trillion from the Fed, you know, at 10 to 1, you leverage. So they will be buying all sorts of assets, and, but they're all corporate assets, and it's all serving the big corporations. Uh, they can buy... Uh, by the bonds, they are municipal bonds. They set up one municipal facility, the municipal liquidity facility, but they haven't bought any bonds. And when they do, the deal is that the states get a penalty rate. So it's going to be the market rate plus a penalty rate. Well, that means their bond ratings are going to go down because it looks like they were, you know, they had no alternative but to go to the Fed. And it also means we're getting penalized as if it was the state's own fault that they need some money, unlike all these corporations that are not being penalized and they get much longer loans. I think there are 30-year loans that are allowed for the corporations, and it's only three-year loans allowed for the states. So we the people are always getting the short end of the stick. But they've got the money, and therefore they run Congress. And they're running this uh, special purpose vehicle situation. So it is very difficult to figure out how we're going to get in there. We need a massive grassroots movement and people just so disgusted that we overthrow, you know, overhaul the system. We need a good people-based, populist 
government and how we're going to get that. I'm not sure. Politics is not really my area. It's just more like banking. Well, let's 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 say we had it, which is which I know it ain't easy, but let's say it, it there is such a thing. What does it do? What are the what are the first steps in creating that kind of bubble, public banking? What 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 do they buy banks? Do they nationalize? Do they create something from the beginning? What do they do? Actually, that's what we're talking about is buying a bank. Um, there's in California, there a, there's a network of cities that managed to get a bill passed last year for setting out the requirements for a charter for a city-owned bank, a publicly-owned bank. and But the legislature was count, uh, considering it sort of a pilot project. So they, could, they said we could only have two banks a year for the next seven years for a maximum of 10 10 banks. So the cities are competing to be the first. And the Oakland group, I know, are they're considering buying a bank. I think there's one for $13 million available in their area. So then the advantage of it buying a bank is you've already got FDIC insurance and you've already got, you know, some infrastructure. And that, you know, so that theoretically would uh, speed up the process. And under the current circumstances where we have an emergency, it seems to me, or we, I've written, we think maybe we're hoping to persuade the governors that they have the power to do an executive order saying we need a bank now and, you know, we're going to set one up here. And then they could fast track it through. I mean, if they can fast track a vaccine through (laughs) that's supposed to take years to test and somehow they think they can come up with a safe vaccine in six months or whatever um, and force us all to take it, they surely the governor can fast track a bank. So imagine you're actually constructing a policy for this progressive federal government. Uh, What do you do? What do you, what, if, do you create something new? Do you, you know, take over Goldman? Do you, uh, I mean, let's say, you know, you're back into another crisis where the banks are absolutely dependent on federal money to survive. Um, A lot of people said in in the 07, 08 crisis, even people like George Soros was saying Obama should have nationalized some of the banks at that time. Now he thought they should be done and, and, and then handed back to the private sector. But an alternative is, take over some of these banks at these times of crises, but don't hand them back to the private sector. Right. And I wrote about that and other people wrote about that, that the next time, no more bailouts, that we should nationalize the banks, you know, the next time they fail. But here's the problem. They have failed. And the Federal Reserve stepped in and saved them, which... how do we stop that? And there was nobody voted on it. Nobody gave them permission. It's really not even in the Federal Reserve Act. They're not really allowed to do that, but they did it and nobody stops them. Um, so we're sort of stuck, but it, ideally, if we were to set up um, a system that served the people, you can see that they've got their own credit system and they, the bankers, have control of it. Um Rashida Talib, who I know is quite out there and probably, I mean, <laughs> probably can't get this measure passed, but she's got a bill for a $2 trillion coin. That was actually my idea in 2007. I had it in Web of Debt, a trillion dollar coin. So her bill says that we could issue through the Treasury a $2 trillion coin. It's constitutional. We've gotten, you know, official 
uh, statement that, that this can is constitutional, that Constitution says Congress shall have the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. And it doesn't say anything, obviously, about the Federal Reserve. It doesn't say that Congress has the power to delegate that power. It doesn't say who has the power to print paper money. That's a long story why they left that out. But anyway, coin and coin money at that time apparently was translated to mean issue money in any form. So Congress could issue $2 trillion. And in her bill, she's saying that we should do a universal basic income. So we do, I think her bill said $1,000 a month, or maybe it was $1,200 a month for the next year, you know, while we're in this emergency, and then we'll see how it goes. And I've written and that um, this would not be inflationary. Everybody thinks it would, but it wouldn't because we have a shrinking money supply. We have a deflating money supply because of the way our money is created. And so you would just be filling that gap and you need to fill that gap over and over and over. I could I could explain that. It's kind of wonky. <laughs> they certainly don't seem to be very concerned about inflation now. They're creating trillions of dollars in a matter of weeks and, and fl- they're all saying inflation is the least of their worries. Right. And so... So they can't argue against our doing it, but they have. I saw objections to her bill saying, you know, these progressives, they just don't know what they're talking about. Increasing the monetary base, they don't know what the effect of that is. It'll be a disaster. But what are, what are the... What is the Fed doing right now? Exactly that. Theoretically, quantitative easing is reversible. You know, it's a loan and then they can, or they, the Federal Reserve buys government bonds and then they can sell them back into the market when they want to reverse it. But they can't. They tried to reverse it and it the market crashed. And so once those bonds are on the Fed's books, they're going to stay there. So it's the same as helicopter money. It's the same as just printing the money and putting it out there. Okay. Thanks very much for joining us, Ella. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.